So as we close our study in the life of Solomon, what have we observed in him over these eight or nine weeks? More specifically, as leaders in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church, as Christians who have influence on our neighbors, what have we learned from Solomon about leading and influencing others? That's what I've argued is that we learn something about leadership from Solomon. Well, if I wanted to sum up what we can learn about godly leadership from Solomon's life, I'd put it this way. Godly leadership demands at least six different things. First, it demands divinely derived wisdom. God has to guide you in the task that is given you. Second, godly leadership demands a clear vision of how God has kept his promises in the past and a hopeful expectation that God will continue to act faithfully in the future. Fourth, godly leadership demands rest in God's faithfulness through Christ rather than in my own work. And let me help you remember, this is several weeks back we talked about this. As a leader, we have to look back and see that God has always been consistent, that he always acts the same toward people. And because of that, his faithfulness, because of his character, the way he has always acted, we can trust he'll continue to do the same forever. And what does that leave us with in the moment but rest? I have nothing left to accomplish. God has done and will do everything that I need for my life. So those three all work together. Number five, godly leadership also demands winsome and wise relationships with unbelievers. We see Solomon had a winsome and wise relationship with the Queen of Solomon, but in this chapter we saw how it's bad relationships with unbelievers. But sixth, godly leadership demands holiness. If you've missed sermons in this series, that's a very brief recap. You can go back, you can listen to all these sermons on our website, um, and you can see what you missed. So last week we began on chapter 11 looking at Solomon's great failure as a leader. What did he do? He intermarried with ungodly nations for reasons both fleshly and political. He liked these women from a fleshly angle, but also politically it was to his advantage to intermarry with these other nations. And what ended up happening because he did this? His wives turned away his heart to idolatry. And the frightening reality that we began to think about last week is that this can happen to any of us. We can begin to entertain fleshly feelings and secular thinking. And if we don't do something about those feelings and about those thoughts, they can begin to take on a life of their own. And soon what seems hidden, secret, and safe within us, the feelings and thoughts that we are having, we, we, we think it's not going to get out, but inevitably it does. Those feelings, those thoughts explode outward, infecting others, hurting others, and bringing us under the discipline of the Lord. And so we ended last week by asking the question, how can we learn from Solomon's failure so the same thing doesn't happen to us? I don't want my sin to be passed on to my wife and children. I don't want my sin to be passed on to you. I don't want my sin to break out and hurt the people that I love. And I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly eager to live under God's discipline. So what can we do to escape temptation? What can we do to be holy? As Christ is holy. What can we do to live and to love and to lead like Jesus would? So, let's answer that question as we wrap up Solomon's life today. First, how do we escape temptation? Well, you can deal with temptation proactively or reactively. And if you're wise, you'll do both. 
When you talk about escaping temptation, I think most people think about reactive escape. Okay, I'm being tempted to sin right now, so what do I need to do to escape right now in this moment of temptation? You do need to know how to do that. That's important. Sometimes temptation will come out of left field, and you will need to know how to react. But you can also deal with temptation proactively. So kids, maybe y'all's imaginations work better than us crusty old people. Uh, So kids... If a soldier is going out out onto the battlefield, what does he do before he leaves his tent? What do you think, kids? He gets his, what's some of that equipment he's going to get, Joe? A gun? Armor? Why is only the boys asking, answering this question? Grenades? That's right, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's getting, he's getting ready for war. That's right. Why? Because he's going out onto a battlefield. To deal with temptation only reactively is purest foolishness. It's like going out onto a battlefield in your pajamas. It's like going out without your helmet, without your gun. You are going to get shot. It's like going into a boxing ring and saying, Oh, I'll figure out how to fight after he starts throwing some punches. The things we're going to learn from Solomon can be used reactively in time of temptation. But if you got a lick of sense, you should employ them before you get to temptation. But kids, let me ask you another question. Y'all remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, don't you? Y'all have heard this story in Sunday school. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, do you remember what he did to escape temptation? What did he say to, to the devil every time? Grown-ups, y'all can help them. It was Scripture. That's right. The escapes from temptation that I offer you today are Scripture. (laughs) They are rooted and grounded in Scripture. That's how Jesus escaped temptation. It's how we will escape temptation, too. So first, to escape temptation, trust the precedents in Scripture. Now, kids, that's a big word, precedent. It's not president, like the president of the United States. It's precedent. And a precedent is a story or an example from the past. And the Bible has lots of stories about sin and temptation and failure. And those stories are in the Bible for our benefit. We need to know those stories. We need to think about those stories. We need to trust what God is teaching in those stories. Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, now the sinful failures of Israel, it's a gloss, you can understand the earlier paragraph, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Pay attention to the stories that are given to us in Scripture. Stories of failure like Solomon's are given to us to learn from. So as we read these stories, we are to see ourselves in them and to take them as a warning. 
So when I read Solomon's story, it's not just an interesting story. It's not just a historical story. It's about me. When I read Solomon's sin, I'm reading about my own tendency towards sin. Look at verse 4 again in our text. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. This could be me. This could be me. Solomon in his old, old age contrast with David in his old age in chapter 1 of 1 Kings. You may remember this. It's a pretty weird story if you did the reading plan with us. In chapter 1, David, in very old age, had an opportunity for sin with a woman who wasn't his wife. And he didn't take it. Why not? Because his heart was true to Yahweh. He was gripped with love for God. Solomon was not like him. Solomon's heart was divided. He was a double-minded man. That could happen to me. That could happen to any of us. When you read the Bible and the stories in it, the fleshly tendency is to find the best guy in the story and to think you're like him. To always kind of associate yourself with the hero of the story or the protagonist. It might be wiser to associate ourselves with the bad guy. To see how easily I could become like him and to take it as a warning. This is why we value the whole Bible, not just certain parts, because the whole book is littered with stories about ordinary sinners like you and me. And these stories are given to us to learn from. So let's think about Solomon's story as a precedent. What do we learn from his example? How does that precedent protect us from temptation today? What do we learn from his failure? Well, we learn this. We cannot trust our own feelings or thought patterns. Instead, we must always be subjecting them to the scriptures. Solomon had desires that felt natural to him. He was thinking in ways that were very common in his day that any of his colleagues would have said were good and right. But what did God say about those things in the scripture? Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon didn't listen to the scriptures. In this circumstance, he put his feelings and his thoughts above scripture. If you want to be safe from temptation, you must do the same. We must endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to submit all our feelings and all our thoughts about the three things we talked about last week. Pleasure, possessions, and prestige. All our feelings and thoughts about those things have to be submitted to God's word. That lesson alone will protect you from temptation time and time again. But Solomon's story is just one of many. We must be constantly reading the scriptures, page after page, learning from its, its precedents. There are so many lessons in the Bible that can help us escape temptation. So many men and women before us have been tempted and failed and suffered and struggled so that they could be a help to us, an example for us. So to escape temptation, trust the precedents in scripture. Read your Bible. See yourself in it and learn from the sins of our spiritual forebears. But also, 
to escape temptation. We must trust the promises in Scripture. So if Solomon had remembered the promises that God had made, I imagine he could have avoided this sin much more effectively. Well, what promise am I talking about? What's the promise that God made to Solomon? That if he had rested in it, if he had meditated on it, if that was his hope and his joy, what promise would have helped him escape? Well, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David specifically about Solomon. We, we saw this last year. We've seen it earlier in the series. What was the promise made about Solomon? God told David this. When your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon did that. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So there are two sides to this promise that God made concerning Solomon. If Solomon had been remembering and trusting this promise, I think he would have had greater success in his war against sin. And the first side of this promise was God's covenant love for Solomon. God said, Solomon, I'm going to love you like my son. And no matter what you do, I'm never, ever going to leave you. Nothing could change God's love for Solomon. If a man or woman, a boy or girl, is resting and rejoicing in the fact that God loves them unconditionally, not because of their good works, but only because of the promise fulfilled in Christ. If you are living in a constant experience of God's fatherly love, you can't sin. If Solomon had just hung on to this one side of the promise, if that had been his mainstay, he would not have done what he had done. So just remembering and trusting in that one side of the promise, that would have been enough. But what's the other side of the promise? Is this assurance that when Solomon commits iniquity, not if, but when, God would discipline him. I don't know that a fear of discipline is a long-term solution to overcoming sin. But in a moment of temptation, when you're being reactive, it should be enough to get you over the hump. (laughs) Here's my point. Solomon had a very direct promise from God. And if he had paid attention to this promise that God would discipline him when he sinned, that God's love would go on and on and on for him. If he had trusted that promise, it would have gone a long way to protect him from temptation. But clearly, he didn't. He wasn't resting in that promise. So Solomon, rather than heeding the covenant promises, he took them for granted. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is not a promise really about you and me. It is fulfilled in Christ, which is great. His kingdom lasts forever. We'll talk about that in Advent. But those promises really were were made for Solomon. What about you? What promises do you have from God that you can trust to help you escape from temptation? What promises are we in danger of taking for granted? Let me remind you of a couple. First of all, we're back to 1 Corinthians 10. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a huge promise. 
What promise do we need to be paying attention to? Well, first, this. God always provides his children with a way to escape temptation. This is a promise that I need to have printed on my mind for when temptations come. You, Christian, filled with the Spirit, cared for by God, you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. If you belong to Christ and you have his Holy Spirit, he has already provided a way out. This is a promise for us to know, to memorize. Parents, have your kids memorize this verse. And this is a a verse to believe. Here's another promise for you. Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no domination over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What promise Concerning temptation, do we hear in Romans 6? This, the primary means of avoiding temptation is faith and repentance. What's the way out of temptation? How do we get out of temptation? Faith and repentance is the primary means. It's easy to think that the key is self-discipline. That we can self-discipline ourselves out of sin. Or that we could shore up our good intentions so that we do what's right. But that's not what Paul directs us to in Romans 6. What does he tell us to do? He says, present yourself to God as one brought from death to life. Present your body to God for righteousness. What does that mean? Flee to God, believing the promise that you are not bound to sin anymore. Flee to God, fall to your knees before him, believing that sin has no domination over you anymore because of what Jesus has done. If before temptation or during temptation, you are believing and resting that Christ has all power over your sin. If you are in that mindset and that posture, kneeling before him, desiring to serve him, You can't sin. Faith and repentance are the primary means by which we escape temptation. The Bible doesn't teach self-help. Our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions, that's what got us into this mess. And so our thoughts, feelings, intentions, and actions are not going to get us out of this. The means of escaping temptation is fleeing to God because of the work of Jesus Christ. Those are just two promises. Two promises to help you escape temptation. And there are myriad others in the scriptures that you should be taking to heart to help you escape temptation. That means, again, that we must be constantly reading the scriptures and trusting God's promises. That's a good Reformation theme, right? That's why we need it in our own language in a way we can understand it. To escape temptation, trust the precedents in scripture and the promises in scripture. But finally, to escape temptation, trust the practices in Scripture. So yes, self-discipline is not the primary way to avoid temptation. But there are practices prescribed in Scripture that will protect you from temptation. Solomon's sin was so insanely avoidable. What simple biblical practices could he have put in place to protect him from this kind of sin? First, I'm not even going to have to argue for this because you've heard it 18 times in the sermon already. Meditate on the scriptures so that you can see its precedents, promises, and practices. Read the scriptures. 
It tells you time and time again these stories to learn from, these things to trust. And he gives us practices as well. So meditate on scriptures. Second, confess your sins and sinfulness to God daily and regularly ask him to reveal hidden sin. So confess to God not only the sins you've committed, but also the bare fact of your sinful heart. Confess not just the symptoms of the disease, but the disease itself. And this is not just a reactive thing. When you're tempted, suddenly start confessing your sins. No. When you wake up in the morning, one of the first things we should hope to think of is our utter lostness and sin apart from God. To daily remember that all our hope, as we sung earlier, is in Jesus. And so we get out of bed in the morning. One of the first things we do is we confess not only the sins we've committed, but we confess our brokenness. We confess our nature and our need of a Savior. So confess your sins and your sinfulness. But don't begin to think that any of us see our sin objectively and well. No. We all have blind spots. We all have hidden sins that are suddenly taking root and spreading their vines through our lives. So it's wise to ask God to reveal our hidden sins to us. Here's a great prayer. This is another one to memorize from Psalm 139. You can make this prayer your own. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This kind of praying, asking the Holy Spirit to do this deep work in your heart of showing your sin to you, that'll protect you from temptation. Why? Because God listens to our prayers and he responds. So confess your sins and your sinfulness to God and ask him to reveal hidden sin. That will protect you from temptation. But here are two final practices to protect you from temptation. First, weekly worship with God's people which the Holy Spirit uses to speak to us through word, sacrament, and fellowship. And last, cultivate friendships with Christians of the same gender and confess your sins and struggles to one another. If you didn't hear my story from last week, it's kind of long. I'm not going to revisit it right now, but I had a, a season in college when I was living a double life. I was preaching a lot, but I was not in my personal life living really at all like a Christian. These two practices were absolutely essential for my own escape from ongoing hidden sin during those days. Why is weekly worship and deep Christian friendship important for escaping temptation, both proactively and reactively? Let's talk about weekly worship first. What we're doing right now, this is not a merely human event. This is not you and me showing up and us doing some things together. No, worship is a time when God shows up We come at his invitation, and he speaks, and he acts, and he does it through his word, he does it through his sacraments, and he does it through these people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews said this, Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our gathering is not just an event, it's not just a fun thing, it's not a recharge, This is a time where the Holy Spirit does surgery on us and we encourage each other and we walk with each other and we love each other and we challenge each other. We need this together. We find healing and encouragement and strength from worshiping with other Christians. But it doesn't stop at 1210 or 1215 when we leave here. No, the hope 
Listen, my hope for you as your pastor is this, that you would have deep friendships with the people in this room, that you would have some trusted Christian friends with whom you can be brutally honest about the ups and downs of your pursuit of Jesus. To this day, this started back in my college days, kind of that season of repentance. To this day, I have two Christian brothers that I meet with, one of them weekly and one of them monthly, in person. And we check in on each other's sin and holiness. We ask each other really hard, invasive questions about our faith, about our marriage, about our parenting, about our work. They know, well, some of the things you guys know all too well about my sin. They know some things you don't know about my sin and my struggles. And they've got the free invitation, the eager invitation, to ask those questions. Jesus' brother James put it this way. He said, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You need other Christians who can ask you these questions. You need other Christians you can confess your sins to. This is an essential part of our healing spiritually. You need the church, the body of Christ. You need, look around for a second. You see these other people? You need them. You need these friendships. You need the word. You need the sacraments. You need the fellowship. Solomon needed all of it. And apparently he did not avail himself of all these means of grace. His failure tells the rest of the story. If you see sin flourishing in your life, yet weekly worship is not a priority for you, that's one reason why. If you feel like you're losing the battle against temptation, but you've never confessed your sin out loud to a Christian brother or sister and asked them for help, that's one reason why you're drowning in it. If you're not reading the scriptures and confessing your sins to God, of course your sin is out of control. These are simple, ordinary, biblical practices that God has given to us to help us escape from temptation. So please avail yourselves of them. To escape temptation, trust the precedents, promises, and practices in Scripture. So what about your life? What about your struggle with sin? It might feel hopeless. I've been there many times. It need not be. To escape temptation, trust the precedents, promises, and practices in Scripture. Listen to the stories Given in the Bible, these stories of failure that are presented to us as examples, see yourself in them and learn from them. Trust the promises that God has made to you throughout scriptures. And before you're tempted and when you're tempted, take them to the bank. Trust in them. Rest in them. And take advantage of these simple, ordinary practices that God has given you to protect you from temptation. And don't do them just reactively. Do them also proactively. Get ahead of things because we are at war with our flesh every day. Solomon's story had lots of ups and really only a couple of downs, but those downs so toppled over his life into ruin. His story need not be yours, Christian. Flee from his example to the good news of Jesus. In Christ, find freedom from sin's guilt, sin's shame, and sin's domination. In Christ, you're set free. Let's pray. Father, we don't take for granted that you've put us where we are. 
It was no mistake we were born the day we were to the family we were. It's no mistake that we live at this time and in this place. Which means there are people in our lives that you want us to influence for Christ. But Lord, if we're going to do that, in some way, in shape, or form, we have to be like Christ. We have to be holy as he is holy, which means a, a, a total rehaul of our thinking, of our feeling, and of our living. And we know that we all fall short. So God, teach us to trust the precedents and the promises and the practices we see in Scripture that help us escape from temptation. We do ask, Lord, echoing Jesus' prayer, that you would not lead us into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. It is war out there. So give us the strength of your Holy Spirit and the freedom of the gospel to live our lives as becomes followers of Jesus. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that we're set free. It's in Christ that we trust. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.